0: G'day, g'day. My name is Ravi Naya, and welcome to the February 2021 edition of a Techno Legal Update, the show bringing to you vignettes from the intersection of law and technology and a word or two about sport. Folks, this is a special episode because it's our first anniversary. Happy anniversary to, um, to you all, our dear listeners, um, to think of how far the show has come in the past 12 months. Golly, um, simply marvellous, uh, as the great Richie Beno would say. Thank you all for the, for the ongoing support um, and good wishes. They really mean a lot. Thank you. So, as I said, it's, it's a special episode, but it's not just me talking. Thank God. Uh, I'll be interviewing two experts on the intersection of cyber resilience and corporate governance in this special first anniversary episode. Um, this intersection has been, of course, dealt with in past episodes of the show. For instance, in the May 2020 and December 2020 episodes when we went through um, the Toll Group and Solar Winds hacks, respectively. Um, I also recently put up an analysis of an unfair, dis- uh, unfair dismissal case from Australia with a cyber angle on the show's Medium blog. Um, but I just wanted to dedicate uh, our February episode to it. And in that regard, to get us going, I would like to read an extract from Andy Greenberg's fantastic book, Sandworm, A New Era of Cyberwar and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers. On June 27, 2017, something strange and terrible began to ripple out across the infrastructure of the world. A group of hospitals in Pennsylvania begin delaying surgeries and turning away patients, The pharmaceutical giant Merck ceased manufacturing vaccines for human papillomavirus. 17 terminals at ports across the globe, all owned by the world's largest shipping firm, Maersk, found themselves paralysed. So that passage, of course, refers to merely some of the at least 10 billion US dollars in damage inflicted by the NotPetya ransomware attack. Uh, I use it to drive home the fact that cyber resilience, uh, given how dependent our societies and our businesses are on secure interconnected computer networks, is more than just ones and zeros. As that passage illustrates, the consequences are significant for companies if they get this wrong, given that, you know, to reiterate, their businesses run in no small part on digital infrastructures. Corporate regulators have also put out guidance for companies with respect to To disclosing and managing cyber risk because even they recognize this issue the australian securities and investments commission or asic which is australia's securities regulator is in favor of quote cyber resilience governance being quote clearly and visibly aligned to other organization-wide governance processes and procedures there is arguably a clear intersection thus between the management of cyber risk and organizational governance processes, namely corporate governance. And the usual disclaimer before we get into the interview that this podcast is purely an independent production by me, Ravi Nair, in my personal capacity and is not affiliated with any organization. And the views of the speakers expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and not of any organization they are affiliated with or have been affiliated with. So to help us better understand that intersection, we have the privilege of being joined by two experts and all-round good souls, Dr. Kerry DeLernia and Miss Irene Halforty. Thank you both so much for joining us uh, on this first anniversary of the podcast. Um, would you mind introducing yourselves? Kerry, uh, we'll start with you.
1: Thank you, Ravi, and congratulations on uh, one year of podcasts. Um, Yeah, um, thanks for the introduction. Um, My name's Kerry Delonia. I'm a um, lecturer in the Business School at the University of Sydney, where I teach corporations law and um, corporations and environmental law and the intersection of them, um, and a little bit of corporate governance as well.
2: Thanks, Ravi. So my name is Irene, and I'm a technology lawyer. I mainly practice in um, what we call the TMT space. So uh, technology, media and telecommunications. A big part of my practice is um, helping clients really navigate the area of cybersecurity, data and um, privacy.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you both again for joining us. Uh, um, As I said to you both before we started this, couldn't think of two better cyber law people and corporate governance people to do this with. Um, So, okay. Well, speaking of corporate governance, uh, let's come back to you, Kerry. Um, Could you please define what corporate governance is or, or to play the devil's advocate, can such a thing be defined?
1: Yes, uh, I think it can be defined. um, And there are a few definitions out there. Um, The simplest way to think about corporate governance is um, that it relates to the way corporations are managed and run or managed and directed Um, we might look at the two words corporate coming from the latin word corpus that is a group so we're talking about groups of people that are united for a common purpose and then we've got governance which is the way we direct and control and so when we put those things together we're looking at the way corporations are directed and managed Um, now we can look internally um, at uh, the company's internal systems, processes, procedures, rules. And uh, We can look externally at the way that a company discloses, at the way a company engages with um, stakeholders, including shareholders, um, creditors, suppliers, customers, and the broader community. Um, but when we're thinking about corporate governance, um, yeah, it, it can be defined. Um, and a, a good definition comes from the ASX Corporate Governance Principles, um, that um, it describes the framework of rules, relationships, systems and processes within and by which authority is exercised and controlled within corporations. It encompasses the mechanisms by which companies and those in control are held to account. And I think that last, um, uh, that last bit there is really important because what we're talking about here is systems of accountability um, and making sure that people are accountable for the power that they have Um, and the decision-making authority that they have uh, in corporations.
0: Well, thank you for that, Kerry. Um, And and what I like is that you were pretty explicit about, you know, the fact that this is something boards or governance, other governance stewards of companies have to do, um, and especially if they are listed on the ASX. Um, So if we could just focus on that last point, though, that like, why is it exactly regarded as critical? Like, you know, Why do we need a corporate governance program um, if we are a company? Um, And also it has effects uh, positive that are external to the company as well, um, like you suggested. What do you think?
1: So, look, I mean, there is, um, it's good to think about corporate governance uh, in terms of degrees um, and in terms of um, uh, the fact that corporate governance permeates the existence of corporations day to day. Um, it's not just a tick box kind of compliance exercise. It's, um, it's really about how the organisation is set up um, to run to achieve the goals that it has set for itself. Um, so uh, when I say in terms of degrees, I guess, uh, I'll go back to what I mentioned earlier in terms of internally focused rules, shareholder agreements, the company's constitution, any rights that are expressed therein, um, board structure, and externally focused. So things like reporting, audit, uh, institutional investors, director's duties, regulator attention, and even class actions from agreed shareholders. Um, And as I mentioned, there is also the ASX's uh, corporate governance principles, which um, operate on an if not, why not basis. Um, So it's it's not that there um, is an explicit requirement that you need to include corporate governance, but this is something that any company that is worth its salt is going to engage in anyway right it's, it's it's implicit in corporate existence um so uh yeah the idea of the um if not why not approach from the corporate governance uh, uh council um of the asx um, is that uh, companies that are listed um, would adhere to the principles that the asx um, has promulgated um, over the last 17 years since 2003 um, and they've updated them uh, over time, so now we're at the fourth edition, and that if they don't adhere to those recommendations, because they are just recommendations, that they would explain to the market why they are not doing so. So, um, as I said, I mean, I think uh, some some people might consider what the ASX has put out there as uh, pretty basic for most companies, and you would hope that that's the case, especially for our largest, um, uh, most... Kind of successful companies. Um, and I think that's the case for smaller organizations trying to get to that point as well, um, where it's a journey through um, the most basic approach to corporate governance, looking internal to then trying to make those systems as resilient as possible to then be able to bridge that gap externally and reach its goals in the meantime.
0: Fantastic. And uh, we, we may touch on this later on in the discussion, but one thing you've talked about was, you know, transparency with the market and about, you know, disclosure as part of corporate governance. And um, it's interesting, the United States uh, SEC Securities and Exchanges Commission, they actually put out a bit of guidance, uh, a bit is is an understatement, but they put out a bit of guidance um, in recent years about how companies should disclose their cyber resilience, cybersecurity practices and controls. So, Definitely, there is there is a bit of an intersection there, as your words uh, as your words foreshadow, Kerry. Thank you so much, You're um, Irene. Let, let's come to you now. Um, could you please give us an idea about what cyber resilience is? You know, what is it? What is it? What is it trying to ensure resilience against? Um, and how is it say different from different from cyber security?
2: Thanks, Ravi. So when we talk about cyber resilience, we're really talking about the ability for companies and organisations to prepare for, respond to and recover from both cyber attacks, um, but also the broader set of security type incidents that you can get from just operating in a a highly sort of interconnected and connected environment. Um, You know, sort of five Plus years ago, we were really talking about cybersecurity, which was this idea of implementing technology controls to safeguard our systems and our information on our systems. We've since really moved into this area of cyber resilience, which is taking a far more holistic approach um, in respect of the types of security risks that can arise. For example, you'll be looking at, you know, how secure is our technology and our systems and our information within that system what is our physical security like? So, you know, who can come into our buildings, who can access hard copy files, et cetera. You'll also be looking at personnel security. So I think it's something like 95% of um, cybersecurity incidents that occur as a result of human failure. Um, And you'll also be looking more broadly into your supply chain and any risks that those supply chains can pass on. Um, Yeah, so... You know it's a far more broad approach now to cyber security um than what we used to take and it's you know implicit in using this phrase of resilience um is this idea that it's not a matter of you know if you're going to suffer from a cyber security incident it's a matter of when and so you need to have appropriate you know processes and systems in place to ensure that you can very quickly recover from, continue to operate during, um, and then have processes in place to improve and prevent it from happening again.
0: Yeah, like it's interesting that, again, as you said, that the H word, holistic, that cyber resilience seems to cover a whole circle of life approach when it comes to cyber risk, that it's, it's not just about trying to prevent, um, if that is even possible, prevent a, a breach. It is mm-hmm. about figuring out, okay, when we get attacked, how do we ride through it? And how do we ensure that? How do we minim, how do we minimise the risk of that attack happening again? Um, yeah. And you touched on, you know, some key types of cyber risk: the insider threat, um, malicious or non-malicious insiders. You talked about supply chains, and golly, aren't they in the news since Christmas with solar winds and friends? Um, and yes. Uh, now, my other question with regards to the definition of cyber resilience is that. There are a number of, you know, policy challenges and areas that are related to cyber resilience, and not just corporate governance, of course. Um, you know, such as human rights, uh, critical infrastructure protection, economic stability, um, and healthcare, and especially, you know, healthcare, um, the privacy of patient data. Um, could you please shed some light on these challenges and areas that are touched by, that are touched by cyber resilience?
2: Sure. Um... So I think, you know, a sort of very basic proposition, there's very little that we do in terms of living our lives and participating in society that doesn't at some point intersect with the online world. Um, And that means when we do see security incidents, the the potential implications for that is really, really far reaching. So you mentioned human rights, Um, you know, you, you probably don't ordinarily think of human rights as an issue with cyber attacks because okay other than potentially the privacy question that relates to it it's just not sort of a a thing that's typically a front of mind but if you think about it you know um, if a foreign actor takes down a country's internet the implications for that is huge you know people won't be able to work Um, people might not be able to access government services, they might not be able to access news. Like, news is a very, very big thing. How would you know what's going on? Where to get further information? We're all doing these things online now. Um, So one of the examples where this sort of happened recently was with the annexation of Crimea, where the internet was shut down. Um, And, you know, it effectively turned into a war zone. Um, human rights can be hugely affected um, by either the actions that governments take in terms of cybersecurity. So are they deploying particular surveillance technologies to control their population? So, you know, that's got implications for dissidents, political discourse, um, your privacy. (laughs) Um, And then also, you know, a failure by governments to actually implement proper cyber resilience protocols can also impact Um, Citizens. So, you know, like the example in Crimea where the internet went down, people won't necessarily have access to information or they won't have an avenue to uh, talk quite publicly about what's going on. Um, So, from a human rights perspective, you can sort of see that, yeah, there's obviously a lot of effects. Um, I think probably one of the major focuses at the moment is around critical infrastructure and we're seeing this playing out in real time at the moment. It was only last week that a um, city in the US um, had its water supply system hacked and they were able to um, essentially poison the water supply. Um, thankfully, they had you know good cyber security protocols in place and were able to spot that an attack was occurring and take necessary measures but you can imagine if there was a failure in terms of having um, proper and appropriate um, security controls that you know you could have poisoned a, a city of people through the water supply um, similarly you know looking at, at our electricity grid so all of our critical infrastructure is connected to online systems when those systems are attacked, things that we rely on to function as a society can go down. Our electricity grid is a really good, good example. Like, can you imagine what can happen if our electricity grid goes down? You know, will we be able to have continuous supply of electricity to hospitals and other critical services? Uh, will we be able to do our work? What are the economic implications of that? The economic implications would be huge. And so you, you do see globally um, there's a very big shift with governments focusing at the moment on critical infrastructure Australia's had um, critical infrastructure for act for a while now, um, but it was really only in, in sort of one sector where we um, really put a, a very much what I call a positive security obligation, so um, a requirement for corporations to take particular um, steps to secure their infrastructure, and that was in relation to telecommunications systems because you can imagine if our communication systems go down, you know, what are the implications for our, for our country, you know, not being able to communicate, et cetera. Um, So, and then I think the other one that you mentioned, you know, economic stability, I think I've touched on that. Everything is connected to the internet. And when we don't have reliability in terms of, you know, communication, we sort of cease to be able to, I guess, you know, run our economy in the way that we currently are, um, everything being connected, And the healthcare example that you had as well, uh, I think I've touched on that as well. You know, if the electricity grid goes down, um, what is happening at hospitals? I'll be able to continue care. And related to that, hospitals have very, very sensitive information. It's like a honeypot of information. So, you know, you've got sort of, you know, overlapping issues there. You've got the privacy issue, um, but you've also got the issue of, you know, the reliability of care. Can you alter records to essentially kill somebody Or um, can you even perform procedures that are life-saving in in certain circumstances? So, um, yeah, I think cybersecurity and cyber resilience is is obviously very important. And although, you know, we think often of um, cybersecurity as ones and zeros and protecting information, um, it's really actually about, you know, protecting the way in which our society also functions.
0: Th- thank you, Irene, and um, I especially love that last sentence of yours that you know, it's not just about we think about it as ones and zeros and um, stuff that, oh, you know, people in glasses deal with in, in a darkened basement when, quite frankly, well, firstly, that's not true, um, but secondly and more importantly, it's, it's about the broader implications, about, um, as you said, the sheer level of, um, of networking that our society depends on and the, uh, the complex interlinking of those networks, um, as as we will talk about later on when we go through a case study. Um, And you meant I I thank you for mentioning the uh, the actions of allegedly off the Russian government, uh, though it has been attributed to the Russian government officially um, in in the Baltic uh, part of the world. Because, you know, um, I remember reading in, uh, among policy scholars that Ukraine is regarded as a test bed by, by GRU hackers for their wares. And, you know, you mentioned the electrical grid. Well, a series of hacks were done, which basically gave the GRU effective control over parts of Kiev's power grid and to devastating effect. And, in fact, you could say that, um, you know, you talk about governments reacting and hopefully um, putting in place sustainable and robust policy responses. And I believe Estonia can be an example of that because in the mid to late 2000s, they were really pummeled by a Russian cyber offensive. And to see the way that that country reacted and responded and essentially made itself a uh, a world leader in cyber resilience in terms of securing systems and the state um, that is a particularly good case study that we can deal with on another day. But anyway, bringing it back to Australia, Irene, um, can you give us a brief overview of how the cyber resilience of Australian companies is regulated?
2: Sure. Um, so I think I've sort of alluded to it just before, um, you know, Australia at the moment is uh, really, really ramping up regulation in the security space and um, We sort of started way back in the 80s with regulating only a small subset of information that companies would have, and that's what we call personal information. Um, And we we put some requirements around that. You know, you've you've got a security requirement to take reasonable steps to protect the personal information. Um, Then not too long ago, we also introduced the Notifiable Data Breaches Act Um, for companies and you know it's not all companies it's it's only those um, that uh, for certain types of companies if you basically um, are earning over a certain amount of revenue and then um, we also um, separately regulated telecommunications companies so you know we recognize that these companies have very very sensitive information being you know our communications Um, and we put in um, under the telco act a Basically, a um, a criminal regime which says that these companies cannot use and disclose certain types of information. It's broadly um, your your personal particulars or personal information, um, your service information, so information about the services that we supply, and then also the contents and substance of your communication. Then you you know, we sort of we we also have separately corporations law. And while it doesn't explicitly regulate or put any positive requirements on, um, you know, securing your corporate information and taking cybersecurity seriously, um, there's a sort of a roundabout way in which that is regulated. So you've got director's duties, your continuous disclosure obligations, and generally your disclosure obligations, Um, and also sort of your more general obligations that may apply to particular sectors, so, you know, people or companies with financial services licences. And, you know, like broadly speaking, directors, and I'm sure Kerry could probably talk a fair bit about um, directors' duties and so on, but um, what happened sort of around the time that I don't know if you remember Yahoo had that horrible, huge hack that happened Um, And it was sort of around about the same time that um, ASIC released its first um, guidance around cyber resilience. And in that guidance, it basically said that we consider as part of a director's duty, you must take cyber security into consideration and you must actively plan for it and it needs to have board level involvement. Um, and that they saw as part of the obligation on directors to discharge their duties with care and diligence. So, you know, you have this general obligation to discharge your duties with care and diligence, and that extends to cyber security and cyber resilience. You can no longer ignore it. So we can hold directors and officers personally liable for, for that failure. Um, and, and I think, you know, from American context, you sort of saw that play out a fair bit um, with, you know, directors sort of having to take responsibility for the failures of Yahoo. Um, then you have your disclosure requirements. So, you know, there's a requirement for you to disclose relevant information that could reasonably be expected to have a material adverse impact on the value of share shares. I typically still point to the Yahoo case because Yahoo was, um, during that particular time, um, going through a process of acquisition and, uh, I think from memory, the the price that um, was paid for it was lessened by like $450 million as a result of their cybersecurity failures. So that would be something that shareholders would expect would be disclosed um, or other information that an investor would expect or um, alternative information that may affect uh, an investor's decision yeah, to invest in you. Um, and then there's, And interestingly, we're starting to see a lot more um, regulatory action in the space, um, particularly with financial services. Um, So these other obligations that are imposed on um, particular types of businesses that are regulated by ASIC. So um, financial services licensees, for example, have obligations to provide their services efficiently, honestly and fairly. They have to have adequate financial resources to ensure that the um, services are carried out with appropriate supervisory arrangements, and that they must have adequate risk management systems. And what we've seen recently, um, so I think it was only last year that ASIC ASIC had actually commenced um, proceedings against RI Advisory, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of IOOF, um, for its repeated cybersecurity failures. Um, And this is actually the first time in Australia where we're seeing um, a regulator use these sort of what I call more generalised obligations under our corporate law to go after companies for their cyber security failures. Um, so that's sort of broadly across the economy what we have. Then separately to that, just to complicate things a little bit more, we have um, critical infrastructure laws. They only apply to a subset of the economy. We're talking about electricity, gas, water, ports, Um, those obligations currently under the um, Critical Infrastructure Act are limited to providing certain types of information to the government. Then separately, again, telecoms industry has been regulated differently. So um, in October 2018, the, the, um, the telecommunications sector security reforms came into effect And those reforms introduced what I call a positive security obligation. So um, telecommunication companies have to take reasonable steps to protect um, their networks and systems from unauthorised access and unauthorised interference, so as to protect the confidentiality of communications and the integrity of their infrastructure. Um, And separately to that, they also have a notification obligation, which is to notify the government uh, when they make a... When they propose to make a, chain to a change to their systems and infrastructure, and it's defined very, very broadly, and you know, basically could mean um, when you give a person a lot of extra uh, credential access to systems, etc., or if you're going to store information in the cloud. Um, and that was really at the time, I mean, I think people called it colloquially the Huawei ban. <laughs> Um, but that was just um, to give government an opportunity to say actually using this supplier is going to be terrible for our national security, um, and yet yeah, just to have a process around managing that type of risk. Um, I, I don't know if you're going to ask me about potential regulation in the future and whether I should leave. We'll what...
0: we'll, we'll cover that um, to, towards okay. the end. We'll definitely so, cover that. But
2: that's that's the current state. Uh, mainly telcos have a positive security obligation in the way that other sectors don't have um, but otherwise you're going to be looking at general privacy laws um, and general corporations law um, to regulate cyber security
0: F- fantastic um thank you for such a comprehensive um uh, overview irene um and, and in fact you know when you talk about um you know uh, the disclosure of price sensitive information i mean if folks want a case study from outside Australia, you can just look at how one executive at Equifax was done for insider trading, that um, he knew uh, that the company had been breached and decided to sell a lot of shares. Mm. Um, didn't really work out for him in the end, of course. Um, and on the point of uh, Irene, uh, and I believe Kerry, you foreshadowed this a bit as well, um, the, the, um, the clear intersection between corporate law or corporate regulation and cyber resilience, um, I encourage the listeners to check out the unbelievably frank speech by Jeff Summerhays, is an executive uh, board member, if I've got that title correct, of the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, um, which, as the name suggests, is Australia's prudential regulator. Um, ASIC is the securities regulator here. Um, and he, he was very, very clear about what um, he felt, of how he felt um, Australian um, like banks and similar entities were dealing with the um, how he felt they were doing the cyber dance and he in a a nutshell he wasn't happy Um, but anyway uh, Kerry let's come back to you Um, now Irene you know touched on this in in her comments um, on the intersection between cyber resilience and corporate governance now you're the actual academic here um, so and you've done a bit of research in this area so I was wondering if you had anything to build on Irene's remarks.
1: Yeah, now Irene covered it very well. Thank you for that, Irene. Uh, very comprehensive there. Um, and, yeah, just to sort of second to reinforce the idea that we've got general mechanisms out there and they're seen by the regulator as sufficient um, for all kinds of risk and you can understand that approach. The idea is if we're too prescriptive, then companies might not um, report on other kinds of risks um, that then Um, if something happens in relation to them, they're asked, oh, why didn't you report? Well, we didn't have a positive obligation to, right? Whereas if we keep it kind of general, I think ASIC's approach is uh, that we might have a wider net to cast um, and therefore get better disclosure practice as a result. So um, in terms of, um, yeah, uh, director's duties as well, um, the idea is that we've got that wide-ranging obligation in Section 180, um, that duty of care, uh, skill and diligence, Um, and um, we also see this being reiterated in disclosure requirements in terms of reporting, um, uh, 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 oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Reporting um, uh, risks that um, could have a significant impact um, on the organisation, material risks, that's the word I'm looking for. So um, when there is a material risk, the idea is that um, companies are expected to report um, what that material risk might be, um, just so that investors and the broader community might be aware that the company could be impacted in that way. And so that would also be included Uh, as part of that duty of care and diligence, um, that if you aren't disclosing that, then you're not really looking after the company's um, interests because it could be uh, pursued through the continuous disclosure requirements, as Irene mentioned, um, and also through the failure to to report appropriately through their annual reports. So, um, yeah, the mechanisms that we have at the moment, um, uh, you know, operate as a kind of catch-all and we can see what ASIC's intent um, is there. Um, and yeah, wh- whether, whether we need anything more specific, um, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. We'll just have to wait and see how companies kind of respond um, to the kinds of threats that are out there. Um, but in relation to your um, specific question, Ravi, in terms of uh, the research that I have done, yes, um, I've, I've done research specifically on that intersection of um, disclosure and cyber related risks. Um, And so the thinking that I had was, you know, if we're thinking about resilience and the ability to withstand, um, you know, a pressured situation and to spring back into shape, um, and if we match that with corporate governance, which is the ability to manage, um, then we've got an interesting uh, kind of set of factors because we're trying to engage in good governance practices in a pressured situation. So, I guess to, to go back to what Irene mentioned earlier in terms of um, uh, it's not a matter of if but when, um, th- there's another adage, of course, which is, you know, your organisation is probably being hacked right now, you just don't know it yet. Um, and so if that's the case, then we kind of have to have systems and processes and procedures and reporting relationships all in a row so that when that inevitable attack comes along, we're not caught wanting Um, And we are on the right foot to kind of respond to it, uh, or if not proactively manage it uh, before it gets out of control. Um, The kinds of business risks that um, I think would present a challenge uh, for directors in terms of um, managing the company with skill um, and diligence in these types of moments um, include short and longer term disruption to business operations and a resulting loss of revenue. Um, the lost value of compromised assets, the intellectual property and other data that could be lost, impacts on reputation and goodwill, uh, post breach share price drops, the loss of competitive advantage um, in terms of stolen information um, and litigation from aggrieved shareholders and from regulators. And these are um, not only potentially costly, but also distractive um, of management focus. Um, and so they can cost the organization um, a significant um, amount of money and reputational damage. And so when you think about those factors, um, you think about, well, okay, they're the kinds of risks that boards are facing. What is their level of awareness when it comes to those kinds of problems? And yeah, I mean, if it were they're easy enough to just walk into boardrooms and have a chat with all the directors and ask them what their awareness was. Well, that's what I would have done, but that was a bit too difficult. So instead I studied the um, annual reports of the ASX 200 uh, in 2017 and 2018 Um, And I looked at um, their disclosure practices around um, cyber-related risks. So the basic thing, I flicked through PDFs, um, and uh, thank you for helping me do that, Ravi, um, and looked for the word cyber and looked for other important words like data and breach and um, keywords like that, but settled on the word cyber and looked at how um, it was just a proxy, of course, um, just to look at the discussion around the term and see how detailed and how how, how comprehensive it was. Um, and so um, through this study, um, we saw over a period of two years when this idea of cyber governance was really starting um, to get traction that companies did um, start to talk more about cyber um, and started to mention the word more. But in terms of the depth of engagement with the concept and the level of disclosure, we didn't really see much of a change. Um, there was, um, an increase, um, in discussion of specific risks or opportunities when it came to cyber and also current initiatives that companies were engaging in, in terms of managing those kinds of risks. Um, but overall, um, the, the level of, you know, while, while the rate of mentions went up, the depth, uh, didn't uh, go up in the same step. Um, and so, um, I guess to put it in a context, um only about half of the ASX 200 even mentioned the term cyber at all, right? Now, when we think about the interdependency that Irene was talking about and how everything is kind of interconnected um, and how every organization, large or small, but especially large are so reliant on um, cyber everything to execute what they do um, and to allow modern Systems to continue in existence, um, you, you you can appreciate how big a risk um, these kinds of issues are, and at once it will it will strike you just how um, how much of a, an oversight it would be to not disclose these risks in annual reports. Now, it's not to say that if a company discloses these risks that they're you know they're 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 uh, they're absolved or that they've uh, that they've done everything they need to do. But the idea is, and it's the same in other areas of law, where it comes to anti-slavery regulation, where we've got to disclose or we've got climate um, risk, you know, well, there's no regulation around that, but climate risk disclosure. Um, The idea is that if we're disclosing it, that means that we're thinking about it internal to the organisation. We're planning around it. We're considering what it means. And we're communicating with our relevant stakeholders to let them know where we stand on the issue. Um, And so uh, we've got mandatory disclosure when it comes to anti-slavery regulation, understandably and importantly. We don't have any when it comes to climate and we don't have any when it comes to cyber. Um, But to see the rates of discussion of these kinds of issues so low um, is a cause for concern. It doesn't mean that companies aren't discussing these issues. I'm, I'm sure that they are. It's just a matter of how much detail they're willing to give um, to that consideration when it comes to external stakeholders, so that we know what companies are doing in terms of managing all that value um, that they hold um, in their decision-making authority. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think I think that's that, that's really the point of the research that, that I most recently completed. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Kerry. And while you were talking, I was trying to, um, you, you talked about, you know, shareholder shareholder lawsuits when they're not happy about a breach. And mm. I was trying to find this and I found it. Um, there, it came out in on the 9th of February that a federal judge in Manhattan had dismissed a proposed class action by FedEx shareholders, accusing the company of hiding the extent of the damage, the not ransomware attack <laughs> on the company's nascent European expansion in 2017 um, and i got that from westlaw today wow. um, and yeah like if you want a, an example of a, of a shareholder lawsuit um fine this one didn't succeed but it definitely um shows you that this is a live issue if not among boards but definitely among shareholders because as both of you have talked about this is a highly material risk if if um if you can say the word highly material um, and also uh, just for our listeners benefit um uh, we've mentioned the ASIC report on cyber resilience that's report 429 and uh, conveniently ASic goes through the the laundry list of regulatory requirements that touch on cyber um, maybe not directly but uh, but implicated um, at section D and appendix 2 of ASic report number 429 um, so folks you know we, we've clearly articulated that boards need to care about cyber resilience and to, to varying degrees they're being public about that. Um, Irene, if I can come back to you, like, you know, obviously this is a matter of giving it more attention than popping a few lines or mentions um, in an annual report, right, um, as Kerry intimated.
2: Yeah, I, I, I mean, the short answer is yes, absolutely. Um, I think um, from what I'm seeing in terms of, you know, regulatory attention on, on this issue, uh, regulars, regulators generally take a pretty dim view um, of boards not giving adequate attention to it um, and I think we'll probably see um, increased um, regulatory action in that space um, like I sort of I always come back to that particular Yahoo breach um, I think it's sort of one of those really clear cases where um, there was a failure at the board level. Um, I, I believe it was in their SK-10 filings with the SEC. Um, Yahoo instigated an independent review of everything that had happened. And it showed very clear statements um, in the review and in the subsequent filings with their regulator that you know the, the data breach was known at a business level um, and it was communicated to you know, people up the chain. But the ability for the people up the chain to truly comprehend what this had meant and truly engage with the issue is where that breakdown occurred and what allowed for that data breach to continue to occur over such a long period of time and to affect such a broad, you know, I mean, practically almost everybody that's got a Yahoo account was affected, right? Um, And I think when you sort of look at, you know, that is a case that happened round about the time that our regulator, ASIC, released its report on cyber resilience and said we expect boards to properly engage with it asic has made clear it expects boards to properly engage with it um, i think you know the law around directors duties is clear that you know due care skill and diligence it's not um simply oh, a tick box approach we've put a sentence in our annual report we're good to go um and i i think you know if i were a director um I would feel very uncomfortable not engaging with the issue because i also understand that you know i could be held personally liable for that so i think you know you've, you've got a lot of reasons to do it um and um yeah so I, yeah it's definitely not a, a single line or a couple of lines in, a, in an annual report type situation
0: and um just to build a bit on that um i recall ZDNet, um, the um, cyber news outlet, they did an interesting article last year, um, if I recall correctly, that basically said, oh, you know, the SEC has observed the word ransomware popping up in hundreds and hundreds of more filings with the agency than in previous years. And, you know, um, um, Kerry, like, you know, given the research you've done now, at first glance, that's pretty encouraging because, you know, they're talking about it, they're talking publicly about it, but then um, as Kerry, you suggested, and Irene, you suggested too. Mm-hmm. The point is, what are you actually doing with, with, mm-hmm. those, um, w- with the knowledge of the threat? And, of course, you're disclosing it. Like, is it just something, something for show, shall we say? Mm-hmm. Um, and, look, we've talked a bit about boards and board members. And um, to both of you, um, Kerry, we'll, we'll go to you first on this, but um, both of you, to play the devil's advocate, is the Chief Information Security Officer the most important member off off an organization's board? What do you think, Uh, Kerry first?
1: Great, great question. Um, Look, I think they're an increasingly important member. Um, It's hard to say that they are the most important because it really depends on the company. Um, Depending on how leveraged the company is to its um, cyber risk and its its attack surfaces. Um, So it really comes down to the type of company, the nature of its business, and the stage that it is at in its cyber governance journey if that makes sense so if they're well advanced then the cio's job is kind of i don't want to say done because it's never done but it's kind of uh somewhat under control and when something happens they'll be drafted into the fray but if it's a company that really hasn't even started then the chief information security officer probably would be one of the most important members of the board um but again i think it really depends on the company and the nature of its business um, and how um how exposed it is to these kinds of risks
2: look i would agree 100 i think um you know the more online our world becomes the more important that role is i don't think it's fair to say it, it's in every circumstance the most important role um you know like the CFO can be just as important and, you know, there will often, there's a whole range of other commercial risks that, you know, companies need to balance and often all of those risks, particularly in the world that we live in now, will have a technology online component to it um, and will uh, require the input of, um, yeah, the CTO. But, yeah, for a company to be successful, you need to manage all of those risks. It doesn't just help you've got a super secure company that you, you just cannot penetrate at all but then they literally can't trade with their customers or communicate with their customers so it's, it's a bit more of a, a balancing approach but um, i would certainly agree that um, increasingly a much more um, prominent role on boards
0: thank, thank you both um, and actually if i can add my two bobs worse uh, i believe it's also important for you know regardless of the um, kerry mentioned the journey um, towards cyber resilience or that continuing <laughs> journey rather Um, that the company is on like the board also needs to respect the the CISO um, and work with him or her on a constructive basis rather than just have them as a figurehead. Um, Because, you know, uh, I, when I think about the treatment of CISOs um, I always think about how Alex Stamos who, who was the CISO of Yahoo. I can't remember if it was during the breach um, you mentioned Irene, but he was the CISO of Yahoo. Then he became the CISO of Facebook. And, uh, it's you know it was reported in the news that uh, Sheryl Sandberg basically berated him um, privately uh, in front of you know other senior executives um, for having the temerity to investigate the abuse of the platform by by the Russians uh, for you know active measures purposes. That's not a cyber issue per se, but it just gives you an insight into what not to do when it comes to treating. Um, someone who is quite important um, uh, as a member of your board, and in terms of their their mission. Um, and uh, okay, so we'll now move on to a, to a case study because you know our two panelists have done such a wonderful job setting the scene, and uh, it's Musk. Um, now, folks, you know you may be wondering, you know, why doesn't he talk about solar winds? Well, if you want to hear about solar winds, listen to December two thousand twenty, where I went through the solar winds uh, um, breach. But I also wanted to, uh, I didn't want to do a SolarWinds as a case study because, quite frankly, we're still trying to figure out how big it is, um, whether that was the original attack vector, yada, yada, yada. While comparatively with Maersk, um the NotPetya, uh, as a NotPetya victim, there's quite a bit of literature um, on this breach. And, of course, um, I have Andy Greenberg's fantastic book, uh, Sandworm, which really goes through, um, gets into the weeds about this um, breach and its context. So folks, you don't need to hear it from me, but I'll say it anyway. This is a clear example of a company that has come off second best um, in the cyber resilience stakes, um, be it in their actual controls or in my opinion, um, and I I would love to um, hear what our panelists feel, um, but also in their response to the breach. Uh, And you know, without just a bit of context, without getting too technical, the attack which was attributed to Russian military personnel, the GRU, Um, used a compromised update channel for popular Ukrainian tax accounting software to propagate around the world. Um, It was originally targeted at Ukraine, but um, the GRU didn't exactly dot their I's and cross their T's. And in this regard, Maersk's Ukrainian operation was the endpoint for Maersk that basically was the starting point for its breach. They had that software installed and via that portal, not pettiest spread, basically decimating Maersk's entire IT network, um, leaving essentially a fifth of the world's shipping just paralyzed. Um, Irene, I'll come to you. Now, when you hear that last stat there, a fifth of the world's shipping just sitting there idle, when you learn that, you know, because Maersk's online booking system was offline, staffers were booking hundreds of containers over WhatsApp, what is your response?
2: Um well, my initial response is clear, like clearly this shows that, you know, this is not a ones and zeros problem. This is a people problem. Um, this is a global economic problem. Like it's it's a very big problem, but I, I think more um sort of directly related to the company, um, the, the first thing that pops into my head is what was their cybersecurity strategy? Um, you know. What were their controls to uh, protect, detect, and respond to from a cybersecurity incident? And did they, if they had it, um, did they ever practice those uh, particular processes um, and make improvements to it? Because it's obviously a continuous improvement thing. But if I'm, you know, hearing something like, "Oh, well, we resorted to WhatsApp messages to get things going again." Um, to me indicates that there was probably um, not a, a holistic approach into, okay, we can't always, you know, guarantee 100% that we'll never suffer from a cybersecurity incident. So, you know, what are the types of processes that we have in place in case it happens? In case it happens, you know, we've got this backup system and we've got this process of doing things. Um, and yet to me, it just strikes as perhaps, um, I don't I obviously haven't done my own investigation into the company I I, I don't know precisely what there was and what there wasn't um, but that's sort of something that just jumps yeah front center of my mind is what was their cyber security strategy and, and their governance processes to manage that.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree um, and the chairman of the board you know when you do the when you do the whole you know It's the equivalent of after-dinner speaking for people who were hit on the head by Jeff Thompson back in the day that, oh, you know, I was there when we had that crisis. So the chairman of the board goes to Davos and attributes the rebuilding of Maersk's network of 4,000 servers and 45,000 PCs to, quote, human resilience. Um, I argue, again, based on the book, that it was ultimately down to sheer luck um, because um, a Maersk remote office uh, in Ghana was hit by a blackout before the attack. So it technically didn't get breached by NotPetya. And thankfully, that office contained the sole surviving domain controller, which um, in layman's term, layperson's terms, it's the linchpin to recovering a network when it has been wiped out. And the firm basically through, you know, um, uh, I've forgotten what the phrase is, but basically flying the domain controller from Ghana to London, where Deloitte had set up their um, response centre for Maersk, um, that, that's what they had to do to rebuild the network, to start the rebuild, because it could be argued that if that domain controller wasn't there, the, the firm couldn't have done the rebuild as quickly. Um, so, Kerry, coming to you, uh, is being saved by pure chance, in a way, reflective of good cyber resilience and thus good corporate governance methodology, um, both in general and both uh, for a globally significant entity like, like Mayersk?
1: <laughs> well, of course not. Um, but I think that mask executives would probably admit that they were behind the play um, on this issue. Um, yeah, you would have really have thought that an organisation of that size and importance to the global economy, um, posing such a systemic Um, risk um, to what everyone else is doing uh, would be a little bit further advanced in its management um, of its um, its assets um, and its cyber risk in in circumstances like this Uh, clearly it wasn't Um, and yeah I mean as you foreshadowed Ravi I mean could you imagine the situation where it was compromised and they had nothing to rebuild from um, uh, the, the, um, the idea that it was down to human resilience, sure, um, you know, um, the, the CEO has said that it took 10 days to do what it ordinarily would have taken six months, and that was using something that they already had. Um, if they didn't have that, you could imagine what kind of damage it would have wreaked on the company and its inability to really recover from that. Um, given its size, it probably would have recovered in some way, um, but maybe not in the same way that it it had in these circumstances. So that would have been a very scary um, uh, position um, for the company to be looking at. Um, So going back, you know, just to that basic um, uh, protect, detect and respond um, uh, matrix that um, Irene mentioned, I mean, it's clear that They weren't really there with the protection. Um, They did detect, but it's really not that hard when it compromises all your systems. Um, And so it really came down to their response. It was the last thing that they had. And when you draft an army of people um, to try and address this issue, well, you've got that many people working around the clock. Um, When you've got one piece of the puzzle, well, um, yeah, it's, it's very lucky. Um, let's, let's put it that way. I think your emphasis on that, on that idea, Ravi, is correct, that it is a very lucky position to be in in those circumstances.
0: Thanks, Kerry. And uh, um, both of you have talked about, you know, have at least foreshadowed the issue of poor practices. And um, I've been waiting to say this because Andy Greenberg, um, he devotes a couple of pages um, to this, um, if I recall correctly. Basically, you know, some of its, uh, some of Mayosk's servers prior to the attack were running an operating system no longer supported by Microsoft. Uh, It didn't do proper patching, its network was not properly segmented, so that really helps a nasty thing like NotPetya spread. Um, And sadly, a plan to solve these issues was never carried out, despite being approved and funded by the company, um, because uh, Greenberg suggests that it was because um, um, enacting that plan was not part of the KPIs for senior IT officers. And Irene, just to build on what you've said earlier on that, you know, this surely is a de- is demonstrative of a failure of governance, not just in a technical sense, but also a cultural sense. I mean, solving these problems was not properly incentivized, was it?
2: Arguably not. Um, look, it's, it's not for me to tell companies what's the best way to incentivise um, their personnel to you know, do the cyber secure things um, on systems and so forth, but... We know that majority of cyber incidents that occur happens because, you know, largely mistake um, by employees. And so to me, you know, you need to have a constant um, a focus on educating and training of staff. Um, and, you know, on a, a more, I guess, personal level, I I don't think um, connecting your um, KPIs to some of these um you know, learned good security behaviours is a bad thing. I think you can probably only benefit from that. But, you know, different companies, you know, have different cultures and, and different way of incentivizing their staff. Um, however, they incentivize their staff to do it, I think provided that they get the outcome of staff actually engaging with the issue, um, understanding what the risks are and regularly updating um, their staff on the risks that there are and the, and the basic steps that they can take to protect the company um, and their job and themselves from these risks, um, that's really what the outcome is and and what they should be aiming for as the outcome and how they get there is is obviously up to them. But I would say generally if there's sort of no side effect or consequence of not doing the right thing and not implementing projects um, that should have been implemented and has been approved and funded, Um, Yeah, I think it could just generally um, help if those KPIs were there, but yeah, it's for companies to decide how they do that.
0: Fair point. Absolutely fair point, Irene. Um, And and note, folks, you know, for balance, it should be pointed out that since the crisis, the company uh, at least um, seemed to be treating cyber resilience as as a source of, quote, competitive advantage. The The security controls that had been demanded by staff were pretty much put in place at once. According to the book, uh, Mayersk finally upgraded to Windows 10 and instituted multi-factor authentication, which is pretty good, that, you know, passwords should never be the sole control, um, particularly when you're dealing with important systems to protect. Um, Still note that the chairman estimated that NotPetya cost the company over $250 million, uh, which includes um, the companies having to make millions of dollars in reimbursements for rerouting or storing cargo. Um, Kerry, uh, I would like to um, move from the specifics to the general. Uh, What do you make of Mayo's experience? Like, what do you feel it did right? Uh, What can enterprises learn from from this case study?
1: Yeah, I think that comes down to their response. So um, once this issue was discovered, it was treated with the significance it, it deserved. And I do not think they really had much of a choice. Um, it wasn't sort of farmed out. It was given the sort of attention that it deserved by top level management and board level. Um, the company engaged in daily updates um, and it had an open dialogue, both internally and externally, which made it much easier to manage relationships with customers, importantly, um, but also suppliers and employees um, and um, and regulators, um, and also engaging with other companies that might have uh, potentially been a victim of the same um, the same kind of attack. Um, I think the idea that um, you, your organisation might be impacted, even if it's not a direct target, I think it's something that we really need to pay attention to, that Maosk, as, as you mentioned, Ravi, wasn't a direct target, but it kind of suffered as a you know collateral damage in a way um, of the NotPetya attack um, more generally. Um, but th- that doesn't make a difference. The company still had to be ready and it still had to be prepared um, to address this kind of um, impact. Um, and so that's an important thing to learn about the importance of being proactive and being able to detect uh, that obviously it had missed. Um, and going to, yeah, that, that idea of treating Um, uh, resilience as a competitive advantage. I think it's a great idea. Um, And I think a company in this position can't do anything other than say that it's going to do that, right? Like it's, it's the, it's the strongest approach you can take. It's not just saying, okay, yeah, we'll get it up to scratch. It's saying, no, no, we'll go further than that to kind of undo the reputational damage that we would have done. So to the extent that they're actually doing it, that's wonderful. And it sends a good um, message out, I think, to the rest of the market, which is that, um, it's something that goes back to your earlier question, Ravi, about who's the most important member of the board. Um, when we think of organisations and the way that boards have come to um, uh, develop over time, obviously we've got an executive, we've got someone that's in charge of finance, we've got someone that's in charge of operations, um, but the, the, the CISO's role has only really come to the fore as an issue, let's say, in the last decade or two um, before that there wasn't really much visibility of these kinds of issues, not much concern, because um, the risk was deemed remote, Um, even though, as we know, there is a long history of these kinds of attacks and their impact on organisations and on governments. Um, But now that risk is just so front of mind that to not treat it as, um, as one of the most foundational building blocks, as foundational as financial management, would be a mistake. And so to learn from this idea of treating it as a potential source of competitive advantage, which is if things go wrong, we can remain resilient. We can keep operating. Other organisations can't, right, or might not because they don't treat it with the same level of uh, importance that we do. So, yeah, I, th- I think that idea of competitive advantage uh, while, yeah, uh, it's the only response that they could make um, to, to appear to be addressing the issue, and hopefully they are in that way, um, I do think it sends a good message out to everyone else that um, even though historically, um, you know, these kinds of issues have not really been um, given the sort of airtime that they um, have today at board level, that that really has to happen and it has to happen quickly. And with the degree of um, intensity um, that the threat that sort of demands. Um, so treating it as anything other than a competitive, uh, an issue related to competitive advantage would be dangerous.
0: And uh, thank you, Kerry. And uh, the um, going back to the point you raised about, you know, MERSC not being the original target, I mean, in general, like, especially these days um, or since 2020 with the pandemic, like, if it doesn't matter that, you know, oh, I'm just a, a company that makes my money by making vaccines or doing clinical trials, it doesn't matter that if you're working in the health sector, you are quite likely um, to be targeted by state actors who are being very assertive. Um, in their um, sort of scoffing uh, at, uh, at established international law norms uh, when it comes to cyberspace, or maybe "established" is too strong a word. Um, so, yeah, the idea that you know, come what may, you have to be, you have to have those controls in place um, as an organization. Um, so, thank you for that, Kerry. Um, Irene, um, what are your thoughts on on this question?
2: Um, yeah, look, I sort of. Spent a bit of time thinking about this concept of you know cyber security as competitive advantage and i think there's probably to me um you know something that we can learn out of i guess all cyber security incidents that happen is that um cyber security is almost like a baseline expected there's a baseline expectation that companies will at least do the minimum things um you know whether that's you know what your consumers expect or because that's imposed legislatively Um, If you don't do that, you're going to find yourself in trouble. But then when you do your cybersecurity particularly well, that can, I think, become a um, competitive advantage, particularly when you do it better than all of your competitors. Um, And I think that can provide companies with a lot of incentive to um, really lift their cybersecurity beyond just using the baseline um, that we would expect so, you know, like to me, it's positive to hear that, yep, they're going to look at this as a source of competitive advantage. I think over time, you know, as these things happen and more and more companies are trying to use it as a competitive advantage, you'll also see over time that the baseline will start becoming higher and higher. And I think that that can only be a good thing. Um, but certainly treating it as, you know, we only need to do the bare minimum is, is probably not going to yeah, get you there. You're probably, rather, you're probably going to get yourself into trouble at some point.
0: Fantastic. Um, Look, absolutely, absolutely agree. Um, Like in in a way it's sort of, as you were talking um, about the bare minimum, um, you could argue that it's a sort of like a a freight forwarding company advertising that, yes, you know, oh, we have have fuel in our trucks to carry the cargo you pay us to carry. Um, It's something you could say as basic as that when it comes to the minimum um, in terms of cyber resilience, because indeed, this is a major, major operational risk for companies, but often can get just either lost in the details or not raised as much as it should be um, in organisations. Um, thank you, Irene. Yeah. Um, yeah. And i will just uh, add that
2: uh, Carrie also mentioned, um, you know, about the fact that you don't actually have to be the direct target to, to suffer in these events. And um, I think, you know, that's probably also putting a a focus on our supply chain security. So it could just be that one of your suppliers is attacked. And as a result, you might not be able to deliver a service. Um, Or rather, you know, your service provider suffers an an attack and it's it's a cloud-based service provider. You might find yourself in, you know, warmer to hot water as well. So you you really have to take a much more holistic approach. Uh, You know, make sure you've got, you know, if necessary, the the relevant sort of contractual mechanisms to make sure that you know liabilities flow the right ways, um, but also that your cybersecurity strategy that you're implementing uh, is aware of and takes into consideration the cybersecurity attacks um, that happen on your broader network that may then impact you. And you know what are your um, your backup strategies for should that happen?
0: And actually, um, as as you were talking, I again was um. Like you mentioned, um, supply chains. I mean, there've been a few of them, few of such hacks over the years. You know, the Cloud Hopper campaign, ASUS Gate, uh, not Petia uh, Solar Winds, or as um, Mr. Patrick Gray of the Risky Business podcast calls it, a holiday bear. Um, given how broad it is, it's not just confined to Solar Winds, um, and it is allegedly done by the Russians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, more recently, um, Accelion, uh, which is that. Which, which was offering a file transfer application, you know, an, an internet-facing application that allows users to, you know, put up large files. Um, and, you know, the Excellion, uh, the breach of Excellion's product has implicated the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, uh, ASIC, uh, law firm Allens, um, and, and, and a... And an Australian company involved in uh, medical research, Um, if I recall, I can't really pronounce its name properly, so I won't attempt to do so. Um,
2: Irene, did you want to say something? Oh, I'm just going to add, like, I think as a a general proposition, you know, you're only going to be as secure as, you know, the least secure person in your supply chain. So keep that in mind when you're designing your cybersecurity strategies and, you know, I, I guess also the companies that you're engaging in your supply chain.
0: That's a very good point because um, uh, Jeff Summerhays made a similar point in his speech. Um, When he talked to, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, Jeff, you're trying to expand APRA's regulatory perimeter. When you're talking about, oh, we want to um, ensure a, you know, build a community of defenders across the financial services sector. Um, And I just want to read from a bit of a speech here, like a sentence. Um, At the heart of the new strategy, which is APRA's uh, 2020 to 2024 cybersecurity strategy, is recognition that the Australian financial system is an ecosystem of an estimated 17,000 interconnected financial entities, markets and financial market infrastructures that provide products and services to customers. APRA only directly supervises around 680 of these. Yet we know that a cyber breach in any part of the system, such as an insurance broker, a credit ratings agency, an IT service provider or ATM repair service, can have a cascading impact on the whole system, um, and I, I'm glad that you know we're we're talking about supply chain risk because it is, it's it's important <laughs> to, to say the least. Um, a matter that has just been underlined by Mr. Summerhays, um, as well as um, your two good selves. So, um, Irene, I remember you mentioned earlier that you know um, talking about the future. Um, well, let's do that now. You know, cyber risk is here to stay. Um, what do the you know coming times hold for companies and and other organisations as they seek to implement good um, cyber resilience as part of good corporate governance? So, Irene, you know, what do you think are the sorts of cyber risks that enterprises um, will have to look at going into the future?
2: Um, I'd probably say like cyber risks. So the types of risk that we're going to see is probably going to sort of remain broadly consistent with taking a holistic approach. So you know, personnel security, physical security, supply chain security and cyber security, which are more, you know, that's the technology security side of it. Um, for the future, um, I think we will see a lot, of, a lot more increased regulation in this space. So um, I think um, the economy more broadly um, will be captured by positive cyber security obligations. Um, the Australian government um, has already released its draft exposure bill on doing precisely that. So um, it's intending uh, to regulate at some point this year um, sort of, I guess, three distinct um, positive cybersecurity obligations. The first one is what I sort of broadly call government assistance, and that's the ability for government to um, proactively give um, companies assistance when they're being attacked, um, usually probably by um, sort of state-based actors overseas. Um, and, you know, it gives them the the legal basis to come in and take over systems and defend those types of attacks um, or those threats. Um, And that would broadly, at at the moment, I believe it's probably going to cover um, all all types of companies that would be regulated under the Critical Infrastructure Act, and and I'll probably get into that in a second because it's a much broader set of, um, of the economy that we're looking at. Then um, the second sort of tier of positive security obligations, which will apply to a smaller set of the economy, um, so um, what they what they're calling critical infrastructure um, uh, and systems of national significance, um, would be this idea of a legally enforceable sector-specific principles-based cybersecurity code of practice. So. The idea is that it's going to go from, you know, each sector or you know, type of industry will have their own set of principles um, that they'll need to comply with, much like the APPs, um, and that is to manage um, all of the cybersecurity hazards or what the government is calling, you know, cybersecurity hazards or what we call cybersecurity risks. So personnel, supply chain, um, cyber, and and um, physical security. And those principles will, um, you know, intended to identify what the hazards are, what are the appropriate mitigations um, to proactively manage the risk and then also detect and respond to it. Um, what are the, you know, the, the types of principles that you need to have in place to minimise um, the impact of incidents once they occur? And then the final, like, legal requirement that they're proposing to implement is the requirement for effective governance Um, And that will include a reporting mechanism whereby um, the board will have to annually provide a report around um, the cybersecurity incidents they had um, suffered over the year to the regulator. Um, And there's also, I think, proposed to be a reporting mechanism around, you know, sort of regularly engaging with the government about the types of um, cyber security threats that you're seeing. Um, And then the final uh, positive security obligation, which will only apply to even a smaller subset, which is um, the the systems of national significance or what they call the particularly um, critical infrastructure. Um, And that's, yeah, you you know, you're looking at... um, those companies or that those sectors and government developing a scenario playbook of what was to happen um, should a cyber attack occur. So, you know, you're probably thinking here about your particularly critical infrastructures, electricity, telco, your communications, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the, the companies will be required to participate in preparatory activities for the government. So this is that idea that we're going to have a playbook and we're going to practice it so that we make sure that we know what to do. Um, and then there will also be a, um, a real-time sort of reporting obligation whereby these companies will report into a centralised system all the types of um, cybersecurity incidents that they're seeing. Um, I, I would imagine that these are more going to be, you know, that sort of cyber cybersecurity in the more traditional sense um, type of attacks. Um, so it's it's a fairly big overhaul what they're proposing from where we're at now. Um, in a lot of ways, it's going to align other parts of the economy with where we're at with the um, telco industry, but in some ways it will also go further. Um, And I think, you know, the the most important um, part in terms of how it's going to go further is, you know, so we know communications, energy, um, electricity already have um, some form of cybersecurity regulation, but, you know, this is going to extend to water, the defence industry, space, health, food and grocery, which might be something we don't typically think of, But I think after COVID, we're all like, okay, kind of get how that's really important. Banking and finance, um, data centres and the cloud, uh, as well as transport. And then also very importantly, probably would have seen this happen during COVID, but education, research and innovation. So the idea that, you know, those particular industries could be hacked and that valuable information could be siphoned off. So that's where we're heading in the future. I think um, increased regulation, um, increased uh, government funding. So government's committed a lot of money to um, our cybersecurity strategy um, and a lot more policy in that space.
0: Thanks, Irene. And just on that last point of funding, um, uh, I remember last year there was a big announcement about, um, and it had a fancy name, forgotten what the package was called, but it was basically about more money for ASD, for the Australian Signals Directorate, which is Australia's uh, Signals Intelligence and Offensive Cyber Operations Agency, more money for that agency um, to basically, you know, do better defence, but also um, tellingly, and this is linked with the cybersecurity strategy, um, more money for it to work with um, the, the regulated sectors to deal with uh, cyber risks. Um, so that, that is, um, that's at least encouraging, especially for the people who keep saying, oh, you know, more regulation is bad. Um, but anyway, that's for another day. Uh, Kerry, yeah. um,
2: so, sorry, Irene? I was just going to say, um, please, you know, please. these proposed regulations comes out of um, Australia's cyber security strategy of 2020. Um, that was a strategy that was designed with a lot of participation by key industry stakeholders. So, you know, um, if you look at the committee that was set up, um, you're talking about CTOs and CISOs of some of the largest corporations that actually had an active input into where are our gaps as a nation? What should we be doing? Um, And I believe the intention is for that committee um, or a similar committee to continue with the implementation of the strategy. And the the money that was certainly um, dedicated in the budget to it is the implementation of this strategy.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, Kerry, uh, a big issue in the cyber context, um, at least for companies, uh, is insurance. Um, And as this was something as Merck Um, the pharmaceutical company found out with NotPetya and most of its 30 insurers challenging the company's claim on the grounds that the attack was an act of war under the insurance policy and thus wasn't covered. Um, What is your take uh, on the issue of cyber insurance? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, when it comes down to this particular issue, it all comes down to how you define war, of course, Um, and as we mentioned in the corporate context, um, these issues are developing um, very quickly in a very short space of time. Um, Obviously, historically, we wouldn't consider this an act of war, um, but that definition um, seems to be rather outdated already today, given the way that um, these tools are being used by, um, supposed state actors um, to do their bidding so um, it all comes down to who decides what definition to apply in these circumstances and um, that's going to be a matter for courts in the next decade um, as this issue becomes more and more prevalent Um, i think in the meantime insurance uh, companies are going to be rewriting their contracts Um, they're going to be much more specific about what they will and won't cover and of course it is up to boards to be very clear um, on what, um, what, what issues and what events would be covered under their premiums. Um, in addition to that, um, I think that it goes without saying that um, just because you've got an insurance policy doesn't mean that you can really sort of kind of give up management to these kinds of issues, right? I mean, that's, that's a, that's a stopgap. It's if everything goes wrong, then okay. But we'd obviously um, prefer to prevent or avoid than to go for a cure. Um, if something uh, untoward happens. So um, I think insurance coverage is important, but yeah, it doesn't absolve boards from corporate governance failures. um, And boards are still going to have to be proactive, um, whether they've got coverage or not, and that they need to be proactive in understanding what their coverage actually covers, and what that means for their internal corporate governance um, activities to ensure that Um, they're doing everything they would need to so that their activities aren't challenged in the future. But yeah, when it comes down to that war definition, um, I think that that really uh, is going to be an important um, issue for resolution in the courts uh, across the world um, over the next decade.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, we're law people, we love words. And, you know, those, those three words will have really important implications for, you know, the cost of Cyber resilience or breaches um, thereof, at least, Um, and you know the the issue of insurance in cyber is especially live because of ransomware. And you know, people, commentators, at least in the cybersecurity space, have been have been laughing in recent times about how insurers who are saying, "Oh, you know, we'll cover you for ransomware breaches," were counting the premium dollars all these you know all these years, and now when it's like, "Oh, every," I'm just taking a throwing a stab in the dark here, but every client on my books is getting popped um, or hacked uh, oh i have to pay out what do i do and it's interesting isn't it that you know the the, dyna- the changing dynamic um you know we, we're talking about the viability of enterprises with regards to breaches of cyber resilience but you could even say the viability of insurers when it comes to cyber insurance um to draw a really long bow if i may um kerry i know this this is an impossible question to answer but look you are here. you're You're here, so I'll ask you anyway. Um, Do you think it will get harder or easier to get cyber insurance now that attacks are more frequent against companies and, you know, attackers, state-based, non-state-based, are evolving their tradecraft? What do you think?
1: Um, Look. It's a good question. And it is very difficult to say. Um, I think it all comes down to how insurance products change over time. So insurance companies have some of the brightest people in the world working for them. um, And they, uh, their job is to quantify and manage meta-risk, if that makes sense, the risk of the market, right? Um, So what we've been talking about this entire podcast is, in effect, systemic risk. Um, And so insurance companies are at the coalface um, when it comes to this issue. Um, I think what we'll see is a shift in the wording of policies. um, And that, as I mentioned earlier, will require directors and boards um, to be very clear about what their exposure will be and how they are to manage that potential exposure. Um, And also, as I mentioned earlier, really I can't stress it enough that even if you have that coverage, you still have to ensure that your internal processes um, and procedures are in check because you wouldn't want an insurer who you have a valid policy with saying, well, that was subject to you actually mitigating your risk and, you know, performing appropriate checks. In the meantime, you didn't do this, therefore we're not going to cover you. Um, so I think that's the direction it's, it's most likely to go in. It's likely that there will be um, policies for this kind of thing, um, but it's just a matter of uh, being clear about what they cover precisely.
0: Absolutely. You know, the, the nuances of policy wordings and, and coverage and the perimeter, so to say, Um, And Irene, I would like to ask you this question as well of insurance, because um, in a way, you know, if regulators, obviously it's unlikely now, given the the winds of change um, about regulatory strategies with cyber, um, like could insurance coverage be the ultimate carrot uh, for boards to take cyber cyber resilience rather more seriously as part of their corporate governance suites? Uh, What do you think?
2: Oh, I don't know if I'd describe it as an ultimate carrot. Um, it might provide a bit of a carrot, um, but I think it's probably a bit more nuanced than that, right? So um, I would say it's not a carrot, you know, to the extent that it results in complacency. So companies going, okay, well, I've got the cybersecurity um, insurance. I'm good, you know? So in in those circumstances, they think that they're, you know, going to be paid back all this money, um, perhaps not realising that, um, it may be subject to a range of conditions like, you know, taking appropriate measures internally. Um, so to the extent that it results in that type of complacency, it, it's, it's definitely not going to act as a carrot. Um, to the extent that, um, you know, uh, companies are sort of engaged with the conditions attached to the insurance, so you must do X, Y and Z, so, you know, implement reasonable and appropriate security measures, et cetera, et cetera, it might certainly encourage them to do so. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that you sort of have to remember, insurance really only pays out on the financial risk associated with a cyber attack. It's not going to um, necessarily mitigate all of the other risks, and I think those other risks might provide a stronger incentive. So I'm talking about, you know, the confidence that your customers have in you being able to deliver a service and to deliver that service without um, giving up all your passwords Um, or putting, you know, you at risk of identity theft. So those reputational risks and, you know, the risk of loss of customers could probably um, provide, you know, a more ultimate carrot. And then I think the other ultimate carrot would be, you know, when they start viewing this as a competitive advantage, well, actually I can make a lot more money, so it makes sense for me to have appropriate cybersecurity controls in place. Um, But, yeah, I I certainly probably wouldn't view um, cybersecurity insurance as, um, the the mechanism that's really going to necessarily encourage um, corporations to take this seriously. I think it may assist in some ways, um, but, um, yeah, I think there's probably bigger, more important drivers that will encourage that kind of, um, yeah, good cybersecurity practice.
0: Thanks, Irene. Um, in fact, when you talk about, you know, non-financial risk, um, to organizations that, you know, that phrase just gives me flashbacks to, you know, Ken- Commissioner Kenneth Hayne in the chair at the F- at the Financial Services Royal Commission that, you know, companies can have blinkers on when it comes to, oh, you know, we haven't, if you look at cyber that, oh, you know, we have insurance, we'll get a payout, we'll it'll cover the rebuild. But, you know, as you validly raise the issue of, you know, what about confidence um, of the market, confidence of consumers um, in the quality or even the viability of your business? Um, and, and in fact, um, I'm not sure if this is like linked to a non-financial risk in reputation or is a financial risk, but it's worth raising that uh, Moody's, you know, the, the issue of credit ratings is live because Moody's announced in, uh, well, late last year in the wake of the SolarWinds attack that it is reviewing SolarWinds' credit rating, Um I can't remember what came of that, but the very fact that Moody's announced that is pretty big and really should be a wake-up call to organisations to, um, to, to take cyber resilience seriously, um, at least. Um, okay, so both of you, um, we'll, we'll start with Kerry, but what do you both uh, consider the top three things that you think good cyber resilience practice by companies must include? Um, Kerry, over to you first.
1: Um, so given my, my research, I think a prioritisation of discussion and disclosure uh, of cyber risk um, as a vehicle for higher standards of governance inside the company. So I think it's important to just start with the conversation and just talk about it um, internally and then hopefully externally, depending on the size of the company. Um, and that's from the board down and also from IT up. Um, and so going both directions, I think that would hopefully cover most of those bases. Um, Coming off that, clear reporting lines and budget for those managing a company's um, cyber resilience position um, and any vulnerabilities um, to encourage accountability um, and a commitment to resilience um, through regular and appropriate testing uh, of monitoring uh, of cyber attack surfaces. So um, just being committed to um, consistently testing um, and reporting the um, results of those tests um, to upper-level management Mm -hmm and just being clear about the organization's position um, when it comes to new and updated threats threats as they arise.
2: Sorry, I'm just going to take myself off mute. Um, Yeah, look, mine are sort of broadly the same. It's this idea of you've got to have a cybersecurity strategy um, that has, um, you know, real leaders in the company championing this. Um, making sure it's a holistic approach across the organisation. Um, importantly, it has to be regularly reviewed and tested. Um, so, yeah, cyber security strategy, review it, test it. Um, and I think finally, it's really also about building um, a sort of cyber secure aware culture within an organisation, making sure that you've got, um, you know, a lot of training and education around that and, where appropriate, connect that to KPIs.
0: Thanks, Irene. And um, actually, when you talk about testing um, of cybersecurity protocols, it reminds me of um, of the bill on critical infrastructure that you know, um, in some entities uh, are under the bill would be required to could be required by the secretary of the Department of Home Affairs to undertake vulnerability assessments or even cybersecurity exercises, um, which, which I, if I understand the wording correctly is a fancy word for wargaming, um, mm. their, their cyber controls. Um, and, you know, for the listener's benefit, just a fun little anecdote. Um, years ago, the, the Yanks um, did an exercise called Eligible Receiver, which basically what they did was they got hackers um, at the NSA, the National Security Agency, to basically, um, without telling anyone else, to basically try and hack US government systems. And this was obviously years ago, if I recall correctly, in the latter half of the 20th century. Um, But just to give you an insight as to how poorly the US government was taking their own cyber resilience, um, they had to can the exercise after only a few days because the NSA hackers were so successful and uh, people unsuspecting members of the US government who are watching their networks getting decimated um perhaps like Maersk so they were getting worried that is it the Russians again um so yeah like if you want a case study on you know uh, um vulnerability and the uh, cybersecurity exercises and the the value they can bring to the table and just you know tearing any facades about control that that's a particularly good example um okay so well before we wrap things up I will just return to up uh, to another case study Maersk um All in all, I I consider that the Maersk case study demonstrated how supercharged the physics of the cyber realm are due to the internet, Um, you know, and we've we've touched on this uh, when it comes to the complex interlinking of systems and entities. Um, And, you know, when we talk about Maersk not being the original target of the GRU, um, well, it still came second best because if your controls are not good enough, you are vulnerable no matter where you are a malicious payload sent via compromised Ukrainian software crippled a firm headquartered in Denmark, which normally sent a ship with 20,000 containers into a port somewhere around the world every 15 minutes. So this demonstrates the real world consequences of getting cyber wrong and why getting cyber right is, as the three of us have discussed, non-negotiable, at least from an operational perspective. Um, and, you know, I hope uh, the listeners understand that it is an important part of even getting corporate governance right because of this clear intersection between cyber resilience and corporate governance. Um, before um, before I wrap up for for this uh, edition, Kerry and Irene, um, is there anything you felt that we should have discussed, anything you want to add that we haven't covered thus far? Um, either if you feel free to jump in.
1: No, I think you've, you've done a wonderful job, Ravi, and also, Irene, I think I just, um, I'll reiterate that point that Irene mentioned about culture. I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think that's so foundational to everything we've been discussing today, um, that it would be remiss of us not, not to reiterate it. So yeah, um, cultural uh, awareness within organisations, outside of organisations, um, in terms of the risks that are posed, I think is, um, yeah, essential. Um, and yeah, good on you for mentioning it.
2: Thanks. Yeah, thanks Ravi and, and Kerry. This has been a, a wonderful discussion. Um, I, I like getting my nerd on with cybersecurity security discussions. So um, it's been very enjoyable and congratulations, Ravi. One year of the podcast, it's fantastic.
0: Thanks, Aurene. Th- thank you, Kerry. Um, on that note, thank you both for for joining us on this special first anniversary edition of, uh, of a technical legal update and, and for sharing your insights. Um, Cause you know, uh, I know this is a virtual, this is a virtual thing. And we're not in the same room together, but it is a, a pleasure to have had colloquially the best seat in the house um, to hear you folks share your wisdom. Um, and yeah, I've really enjoyed this discussion with you and I'm, I'm glad that we can give the listeners um, the benefit of your insights. So Kerry and Irene, thank you so much and have a lovely day and all the best. Thank you, Ravi. <laughs> so there you have it, another episode, the first anniversary special episode of A Techno Legal Update, our tin pot little podcast, Dancing at the Intersection of Law and Technology, all wrapped up. folks. Thank you so much for your continued support uh, over the past uh, year. Working on this podcast is, is quite rewarding because um, I'm able to, you know, explore my, uh, my interests in the said intersection of law and technology, and especially in this case, cyber resilience and corporate governance. And in producing this podcast, I've learned a lot. And folks, in that regard, thank you for your kind wishes. You're motivating me to keep producing episodes. Um, you folks, uh, the few loyal listeners out there, you, you know who you are. Um, really, it, it means a lot. Thank you. Um, thank you again to Kerry and Irene for joining me for this episode. Again, great chat, great insights, both of you. Um, oh, just a bit of an admin matter. Um, I referred to the uh, Prudential Regulator in Australia as the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority. Correction, it's actually the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority. Authorities, So minus 10 points to me. Um, In that regard, folks, um, as usual, please, uh, if you have any feedback, any suggestions or comments, please feel free to dish it out freely to to me um, on Twitter at Ravi Rocks, um, to the show uh, on our Medium page, on our LinkedIn page, on our Twitter page at Tech Legal Update. Everything's linked in the show notes. Um, Feel free because look, I I just want to keep learning and you folks can certainly help me in that regard. So without um, my further stuff to say, folks, um, thank you for being with us uh, all these months and please look after yourselves, take care, go well and cheers.